we have many things to be grateful for. Amen? It is a blessing not only to be alive, um, but not just living, but having eternal life. You know, eternal life begins today, the day that you immediately give your life over to Christ. It's not that life stops, right? You just go to sleep, and then you, he wakes you up when it's time to go home. And so oftentimes, you know, we, as I was telling uh, some of the leaders outside, we kind of lose the joy of salvation. We look a little serious sometimes. Um, so it's okay to loosen up and smile every once in a while. I promise I won't take advantage of you um, if you smile. <laughs> but, um, but nevertheless, it is a joy just to be back in Canada. Um, I remember when this movement and conference was beginning, 2009 actually, and I had the privilege to come in and speak there uh, the first time and uh, have been excited about all the things that you guys have been doing here in Canada and the missions. And so uh, it's just great to be back again and to be willing to have me here. Uh, with, uh, before we get started, I also want to kind of talk a little bit about um, righteousness by faith right out the gate. You know, it's one of those topics that no one really wants to touch. When we used to plan seminars for GYC, it was a little interesting choosing who was going to talk about salvation. If you had a seminar on that, sanctification or justification or 1888, you know, these things are very hot topics in the church. Maybe not among young people, right? We're not necessarily debating about salvation, but on the higher ivory towers of life, the scholars are debating about this issue. It gets very, very minute, the points and what specific terms you use and at what point does justification become sanctification. Um, and what does that mean to sin? And was Paul converted in Romans 7? And we go on and on and on down the line. But I want to let you know my intentions in terms of going forward this weekend. Um, I want to start off first with Jesus' teaching. Um, to me, if you want to understand anything clearly, just look at what Jesus says. He explains everything very clearly. And I believe that Mary's counsel in John 2 is the best counsel you can ever receive which is whatever he says to you, do it. That's the best counsel you can ever receive. Whatever Jesus says to you, do it. End of discussion. And if that's carrying water pots, then carry water pots. You'll be a part of a miracle. But sometimes we're, we're, we're so much burdened by the menial, apparent menial tasks that Jesus asks us to do, when in actuality he's inviting you to be a part of a miracle, a story that will always be told. We don't even know the names of those guys that carried those water pots. But they knew, their family knew, and of course, who knows what their children went on to do for the Lord. We'll hear about it in heaven. But I want to first talk about Christ and his teachings about righteousness and faith and all those things. Then I want to kind of continue on to talk about righteousness by faith in the Old Testament um, tomorrow morning. And then tomorrow night, we'll go into the gospel from the gospels. Um, I don't know why people don't like to use the gospels to preach the gospel. We like to go to Paul, but it's called the gospel of such and such. Um, and so I want to talk about the gospel in the gospels. And then my last message, I'll deal with the whole 1888 and our pioneers. You know, some people say we rejected it. And uh, a year and a half ago, I was sitting at dinner with some friends, having some Thai food. 
and um, my meal got ruined, you know, very quickly as this discussion came up of 1888. And the brother's like looking at me, he's like, man, you know, don't you feel like our whole church, we just need like a corporate repentance, like go to a field and just like repent publicly as a church, you know, with the leaders, all of us there. I said, all 18 million. He's like, yes. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't believe that the church fully rejected it, and I don't believe the church fully accepted it. I said, it's a little bit of both. Um, but I said, uh, which is why I'm starting with three quotes from Adventist authors at different times in the church to show that the continuity of righteousness by faith has always been in our church. It's never not been in our church. Even the great controversy before 1888, when these visions were given, it's saturated with righteousness by faith language. That was the book that converted me into the church. And righteousness by faith was the most powerful truth I've ever heard in my life. To date. I haven't heard anything more powerful. And what I mean by powerful is the ability to transform an individual's life. Every major figure in Christian history, the turning point to where they became, the people we now admire them to be, was the point of their conversion. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit later in this message. So to talk about this experience of righteousness by faith, it is not happenstance that when you trace people who inspire you, who touch your life, it is oftentimes rooted in the experience of salvation in their life. Listen, you don't, you don't start giving certain kinds of messages unless you've been through something. I can tell you that right now. People think, you know, people come to me about mentoring them and preaching. I'm like, listen, I can teach you. Teaching you preaching is like teaching you how to play pool. Very basic stuff, okay? Hit the ball on the top, the middle, or the bottom. Hard, soft, or medium. It's not complicated. But while it's simple, you know, these things will take you a lifetime to master them. But I said, at the end of the day, there's certain things I can never teach you. I said, unless you've been through something, there's a certain things a person cannot teach you. And, you know, Sister White talks about this in Ministry of Healing. Some people have never been touched by trials or burdens. So as soon as something difficult comes, people come and say, oh, I got victory over this. I'm like, is that, if that's the most difficult thing you're dealing with in your life, you're going to have a hard time relating with the world. Because I grew up in the city. My best friend was shot at nine, 50 bullets. My lunch lady was killed for talking against games, seeing women raped, Seen kids picked up. My babysitter was jumped walking me home from school. Those are just a few of my experiences in the city. And then you come to the church and people are like, oh, you know, I'm struggling with impatience. <laughs> I got victory over impatience. And I'm not downing anyone's victory. Don't misunderstand me. But what I'm saying is I need to know Christ can do more than just handle impatience. You understand what I'm saying? I need to know that Christ can restore my lost childhood, my innocence. You know, sexuality is also a meaningful topic for me, too. You go in the city, your parents are not around. Single moms, they're working all day long. So you're left to the devices, as that quote said, as a mother, do you let them hang with these kids in the city? You don't have a choice. Your friends are who live nearby. And who knows what kind of stuff is going on in their house? And you know who knows? We know as kids. Because they're showing me. So you're sitting there thinking playing house is such a very, you know, innocuous game, right? 
you're the mama, I'm the papa, it's the kid, we do the dinner, you know, okay, it's time to go to bed. This girl took me behind the door, started explaining to me, this is exactly how you have sex. Mama and papas do this. Six years old. Did you know, based on behavioral and criminal science, that when a, when a child is exposed to sexuality before their time, this is where deviance begins. And the earlier they're exposed to sexuality where they don't understand it, the more deviant they will be. It's not, it's not happenstance. So when we talk about getting victory over things, we need to be very, very keen on the fact that the people we're trying to minister to are dealing with a lot more than the things we talk about getting victory over. They're dealing with real struggles. I'm not saying that our struggles are not real, but I'm just saying they're real on a different level. Those are the things you have nightmares about happening to your kids. Nightmares about happening in your church. When they happen in our churches and we find out we're so shocked by it. As if we don't even know how to handle it. I've sat in the, the meetings as an elder. So I, I'm coming from a place to make sure that we, actually, why don't we put our phones on silent just in case you have not, unless you're a doctor. I don't want, I don't want anybody to die because you're listening to my sermon. <laughs> but it is very important that when we engage in this topic of righteousness by faith, we don't just talk about, you know, Jesus came to die for me so that I could overcome impatience. Sounds like a very costly sacrifice. And the reality is it's true. You couldn't overcome impatience without the righteousness of Christ. You will continually be an impatient, selfish person. That's true. But the issue is we don't see where impatience will eventually take us. It's not about the impatience. It's about this is what's coming down the road if this thing does not stop. You know, people give up their virginity because they're impatient. People get addicted to drugs because they're impatient. People kill people because they're impatient. You know, road rage is one of the primary reasons for violence on highways in general communities. Road rage, tracking a person down. You cut me off, I'm going to follow you all the way home. Do you understand the level of anger a person must have over such a small infringement? I cut you off in the lane. You want to track me down to my house till you run out of gas. And as soon as you jump out of the car, they're going to jump out and beat you up. Just to make a point, you should have never done that. So it's not just about, oh, you know, sometimes I get angry in my heart. Listen, we have to understand where these things are going to take us. So as we think about this, I don't want you to think about the nice pretty sins, because we have those pretty sins, right? Those are the ones that you can talk about. Those are the ones you can share. Those are the ones that we can use James 5, 16, right? Confess your faults one to another. Yeah, yeah, you know, these are my faults. Uh, sometimes I'm not really ready for the Sabbath. My shirts are not pressed. Oh, man, this brother's going through grief. Let me pray and intercede. Lord, help him to iron his shirts before the sun sets at 812. But listen, I've been a preacher for a long time. I counsel a lot of people. And one of these days, I'm going to preach a sermon called The Other Side of the Adventist Church. The side we don't, we like to act as if it doesn't exist. Because the whole point is, 
We come to this meeting, we smile, we dress nice, and we make ourselves look a certain way. But you and I both know what's going on. We both know. So I'm not asking us to listen to these sermons in the light of these little weaknesses. We're going to have a prayer session afterward and be like, oh, yeah, just pray for me. You know, I'm just trying to get my devotional life together. Those are what we call the acceptable struggles. Right. Those are the ones we expect because we're kind of like everyone has those struggles. But what I want you to think about in the light of these sermons, this this conference is the ones that are in the basement of your soul. The ones you're afraid that somebody will find out about. The ones that when people confront you or ask you questions that are dancing around the bush, you start getting nervous, your heart rate goes up, your breathing changes, you start becoming defensive, telling people it's not your business. Those things that you probably wouldn't even want to mention to your kids. Those are the sins we should be thinking about in the light of these sermons. Because those victories are what change your life. Because in your mind, if God forgave you for those, you'll be like Mary. You feel like he forgave you much. And if you've been forgiven much, you love much. You sing differently. You struggle differently during spiritual lows. Because you come like Peter. Where else would I go? I can tell you right now, I've been in spiritual lows, but I'm not leaving Jesus. (laughs) It's hard. It's rough. I'm like, Lord, I'm struggling, but I'm not. I will stay right. I'll struggle right here in your presence. But there's no possible way. There's nothing for me. That's where we have to be. At that level of bankruptcy in Christ. So I need to say this before we start talking about at least my sermons and hopefully reflecting on the ones that have already been shared. That. You don't have to grow up in the city. You don't have to have your best friend shot 50 times to have a powerful testimony. You just have to know sin and you have to know a savior that got you out of it. But we're not talking about the petty pet sins. I'm talking about the things that define you in your mind as to why you struggle to accept the love of God. And I'm also talking about the ones that we like to code over like pride. Those are the ones that kind of get an extra skate off. But, you know, you got pregnant outside of marriage. Yeah, we got to disfellowship you. When a pregnant girl at 19 is less dangerous than a prideful elder. But that brother will stay in that position for decades. She'll be out the church in 10 minutes in a board meeting. And at least she feels bad for what she's done. So please, please, please. Serious reflection on these things. Anyway, I'm losing my time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the gift of life and for Christ. You know that, Lord, this man is but dust in your sight. And all I'm asking and praying for is that you would do for us what we can never do for ourselves. That you would give us the ear of the learned. And, Father, that you would give me the tongue of the learned. That I may know how to speak a word in season to him and her that is weary. Thank you for these gifts, and we offer this prayer from our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read to you three quotes by three Adventists at three different times. The first one says, Faith is as it were the hand 
that the sinner stretches forth to receive the free gift of God's mercy. This gift God is ever waiting and willing to bestow upon us, not as a reward for anything we may do, but simply because of his own infinite love. The gift is ours to receive, and it is received through faith. Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, volume 6, page 502. Very recent quotation from Seventh-day Adventist. But let's go back a little bit farther. This one is by a man named Carlisle B. Haynes. It's called Righteousness in Christ, page 15. He says this, when God pronounces us just, we are freed from condemnation and restored to his favor. Should have said amen. A new standing before God is bestowed upon us. We are pardoned, period, as they say in England, full stop. The penalty of death for the transgression of the law is remitted. We are received into God's favor. His grace now flows out actively to us and imparts every spiritual blessing. And the basis of all of this is Jesus Christ and his finished work the basis but then let's go back even more succinct what is justification by faith it is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself that's Ellen White testimony to ministers Page 456. It's in the section to ministers where it's called Elevate the Standard. <laughs> That's the last paragraph. So I want you to think about this. This is the framework I'm working with this entire weekend. I don't want to sit here and start developing concept after concept. I'm going to give it to you straight out from the beginning. What is justification by faith? What is righteousness? They're the same thing. Righteousness by faith, salvation by faith, whatever you want to call it. What is righteousness by faith? It is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust. If you're going to talk about righteousness by faith, you have to recognize that humility is not some grace necessarily developed for virtue. It is the proper response to the fact that there's nothing I can do to save myself. You don't have to make a person humble when they understand this is because of what Christ has done. How can I boast? But when people are walking around prideful, you can't understand righteousness by faith and be prideful. You don't understand it. You, you understand the theology, right? The Pharisees knew where Jesus was going to be born. Oh, where will he be born, king of the Jews? Oh, the Bible says in Micah 5. Bethlehem Ephrata. They knew exactly where Jesus was going to be born, but were they there? No, they were not. Why not? Because it was knowledge, not experience. Their hearts were not ready to receive a Messiah from Bethlehem Ephrathah. That was the reality. But they could break down the theology. So when we talk about righteousness by faith, the first thing we're going to deal with is, anytime we deal with righteousness by faith, we are laying the glory of man in the dust. All of our glory, all of our righteousness, the Bible says is what? Filthy rags. You know what that means? Your, the garment is a symbol of character. So if it's filthy, then it's mingled with something else. 
That's called self, right? It's called pride. Whatever else you want to add in there, sin, our righteousness. So the first thing is killing the glory of men, destroying it, putting it in the dust. But it goes forward and says, and number two, doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. This is beautiful. What is justification by faith? By the end of this conference, I want you to have this quote memorized. So when someone says, what is justification by faith? I'll just give you the prophet's simple explanation. It is the laying into the dust the glory of men. And it is doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. So when we look at the Old Testament tomorrow morning with this concept, you'll be realizing it's all over the Bible. Every story, every passage, every experience, the entire canon of Scripture is saturated with these principles. And as we understand these principles, we realize that righteousness by faith also teaches us how to do ministry. Because it's not only that we are righteous by faith, it's not only that we're sanctified by faith, it's also we win souls by faith. I did canvassing ministry for 12 years. Constantly I tell students, the first worship I give them every single summer, every single program, I take them to Christ's object lessons. It is not the capabilities you now possess or ever will possess that will give you success in the work. I didn't say that. Ellen White said that. So what this means is this. It is not the capabilities you possess before you came to this program. I don't care if you're a natural speaker. I don't care if you're naturally gregarious. I don't care if you're a friendly person and you love people. I don't care if you're Hispanic and you're saying, listen, man, I could talk to anybody. I could sell water to a whale. I don't care what sales experience you have. It is not the capabilities you now possess. And when I'm done training you after 10 weeks, the capabilities you ever will possess that will give you success in the work. You know what the next sentence says? It is that which the Lord can do for you. <laughs> we need to have less confidence in what man can do and more confidence in what God can do for every believing soul. Sounds like righteousness by faith to me. But this is Christ's object lessons dealing with ministry. So righteousness by faith directly impacts our effectiveness in evangelism. Because if I don't understand that principle, I think because I'm knocking these doors and I did this and I did that, this is what's giving me success. No, it is not the capabilities. The only reason why that person opens that door, the only reason why that woman was ready to receive that book from you today was because the Lord prepared her heart. He just needed a delivery boy. Amen. I'm happy to be a delivery boy for the king of the universe. Listen, when the king calls, I'm ready to go. So by us, the fact that we have a king, God doesn't need us. Great controversy says he could finish the work by speaking one word. He doesn't need us. One word. So God, you could finish the work by speaking one word, and you got us out here organizing missions to Manitou Island, doing outreach and stuff. What's going on? <laughs> Clearly, God has a purpose. Are you following what I'm saying? Amen. But because God doesn't need us in the work, it's because he didn't need us in salvation either. It's the same principle. So this not only impacts our lives, our journey, our everyday walk with Christ, it impacts our understanding of how to do evangelism. 
And just like in ministry, just because it's what the Lord can do doesn't mean you sit and do nothing. We'll talk about that today. I want to start with these quotes to make it very plain. Every sermon you're going to hear from me, you're going to hear these principles again and again. And the reality is, I was thinking to myself, I was talking to the Lord today. I was like, Lord, you know, how is I going to preach four sermons on righteousness by faith? I mean, by the first sermon, you pretty much got it. Why do we need to keep preaching it? And then you realize, well, we're going to be studying this thing for eternity. So the Holy Spirit is like, so we're going to be studying this for the rest of eternity. You think you can accomplish that in four sermons? (laughs) Laying into the dust the glory of men. Your sermons ain't even scratching an inch of what it understood of what happened on that cross. Listen, I want to read to you a quote. Go to Deuteronomy 29, 29. Deuteronomy 29, 29. When you're there, you can say amen. Deuteronomy 29, 29. I love this verse. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. I want you to listen to Education, page 171. They have it in my Bible. It just makes life easy. It says, the idea that certain portions of the Bible cannot be understood has led to neglect of some of its most important truths. The fact needs to be emphasized. It needs to be what? Emphasized. The fact needs to be emphasized and often repeated, as if they're two different things. That the mysteries of the Bible are not such because God has sought to conceal truth. Are you understanding what I'm telling you right now? This is serious stuff right here. I'm going to say it again. The mysteries of the Bible are not such because God has sought to conceal truth. We don't understand the incarnation because God has just concealed it from us. We may go back and forth about the 144,000, all these other things that we feel are concealed in the Bible. The seven thunders in Revelation. We got all kinds of stuff. We think, oh, no, God just hasn't. No, listen. She says, it is not because God has sought to conceal truth from us. It goes on to say, but because of our own weakness or ignorance makes us incapable of comprehending or appropriating the truth. The limitation is not in his purpose, but in our capacity. You looking at the Bible in the morning and you're like, I'm not getting anything out of this. The limitation is not in God's purpose. It's in your capacity. I don't see anything in the genealogies of the Bible. The limitation is not in his purpose. It's in your capacity. You told yourself there's no message in the genealogy. That's why you look at, oh, yeah, when you're reading the Bible all the way through, oh, man, Chronicles has all these genealogies. Genesis is all, Leviticus. Oh, Lord, I don't know if I, Numbers. Because the limitation is not in his purpose, but in our capacity. So when we look at righteousness by faith and we're trying to understand the depths of these things, the limitation is not in God's purpose. It's because in our capacity, we can't comprehend it. One of my favorite quotes says, the eyes can never see, 
what the heart cannot accept. And it's the truth. It could be plain as day in your face, but you'll never see it because in your heart, you can't accept it. There's many people like this right now. I'm going to get to my message proper. I'm way off track. I mean, (laughs) go to Matthew 5. Matthew 5. I want to talk about our Lord for a little bit. Use his teachings. Matthew chapter 5. This is the Beatitudes. Now the Bible says in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 5, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and he taught them. Now, the Bible tells you in the previous verses of Matthew chapter 4, in verse 23, And Jesus went about all Galilee preaching, sorry, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments. And those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great multitudes did what? What does your Bible say? They followed him. So in seeing the multitudes, Christ decides to take a seat on a mountain. And to start teaching the things we're going to look at. So now, I want you to understand that in the Gospel of Matthew, this is a very, very critical time in the Gospel of Matthew. Because the Gospel of Matthew, I don't want to get into all the the details of it, but suffice it to say that up until this point in Matthew, Christ has been going around saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near to you. It is drawn closer to you. So obviously Christ is talking about himself having come down and now he's ministering to people. So he's saying this is the kingdom of heaven. It is drawn near to you. It is at hand. That means it's close to you. So now as Christ draws near to people and says the kingdom of heaven is at hand and he's preaching this thing, but they're like, okay, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean? So now this is the first time through all his healing ministry, he now sits down and says, I'm going to teach a multitude. This is the whole group from all kinds of places. And of course, the people who are sitting there in the audience, they're thinking this guy's definitely probably got to be the Messiah. And if he's got to be the Messiah, then this guy's ready to deliver us from the Romans. I'm ready to hear what he's got to say. What exactly is the game plan? What, tell us about the kingdom. Give us something specific. So as they're listening to Christ, I want to focus our study today on Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6. The Bible says that Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. Now, I want you to notice that for the first thing about this text that is interesting is that the Bible says, blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, not those who are righteous. You see, when you use the word blessed in the Bible, right, when Abraham was called in Genesis 12, what did God promise to do for him? He promised to what? To bless him. He says, and I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, when he's talking about being blessed, 
He's not talking about bless as in, you know, Psalm 34, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. God's not praising you. That's not what the text is saying. He's not saying, Abraham, I will praise those who praise you and I will curse those. No, 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 no. When you talk about blessing and curses, we're talking about Deuteronomy 28. Blessing and cursing had to do with either blessing meant God's going to cause good things to come. This is a sign of the working of God in your life. And a curse was God's going to bring some very difficult things into your life. But either way, if it was a blessing or a curse, even though sometimes they're the same word in Hebrew, which is interesting. It's always God that is conducting the action. So I want you to track with me for a second. So if the Bible says, blessed are you if you hunger and thirst for righteousness. So the first thing we have to establish here tonight is the fact that God's working in your life is, given, is, is evidenced by your desire for righteousness. You see, the word hunger and thirsting is trying to communicate something that in an Eastern mind, they would get it. You see, when you were hungry in an, in an Israeli, in a Middle Eastern context, that means there was probably a famine. You were probably very poor. You couldn't afford resources. But most of the time, if you're talking to a multitude of people that are hungry and thirsting, that means that there is a famine in the land. And when there's a famine in the land, there is literally no food when your whole livelihood is based upon whether this thing produces grain or not. So Christ draws upon this figure that they felt it before. And if you look in the Bible, hunger has haunted the people of God, literally. Abraham gets called. All of a sudden he goes out. What happens? There's a famine in the land. Then Isaac takes over as the patriarch. There's a famine in the land. Then you're like, okay, we go forward. Amos talks about, well, there'll be a famine in the land, but not for bread. In the days of Ruth, there was a famine in the land. And I could take you from famine to famine to famine. Joseph had his famine in Egypt. Why is it that these situations are constantly haunting the people of God? You notice that in all of these famines, God had a purpose of where he wanted to drive them somewhere. Are you hearing what I'm saying? When God allowed a famine, he was trying to drive his people to some place. You see, when he allowed the famine, Abraham, he allowed Abraham to go to Egypt. He had a purpose he wanted to use for Abraham to go to Egypt. But Abraham lied. He didn't trust God. So he made the situation worse. You're already in a famine. Now you just lost your wife. Because you didn't trust God. Now Isaac comes along. He knows the story of his father. There's a famine in the land. He tries to go to Egypt. The Holy Spirit says, stop. Don't go to Egypt. I want you to stay in a land of famine. And I want you to not only stay, I want you to throw your seed in a land of famine where there's no rain. Why would you want me to stay here and sow my seed? Well, the Bible goes on to tell us, right? Genesis 26. That Isaac in the same year received a hundredfold. Then when Joseph was in Egypt, Pharaoh had the dream, right? About a famine was coming. There will be seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. Why would God allow this while Joseph was there? We know the story, don't we? All the things that he learned in Potiphar's house and in that prison prepared him to be perfectly positioned to be second in command of Egypt, to guide the most powerful nation on the earth through a famine. 
because God was driving that nation closer to God. When God allows there to be a lack of famine in the land, when he suffers us to hunger, he's driving us somewhere. This is why it's following us all the time. We think, well, if I follow Jesus, I'm always going to have plenty. Why? Because here's the problem. When we have plenty, there's certain things as human beings we never think about pursuing. We naturally become content. So a lot of times in our lives, God has to let us go through a famine so we'll run to him. He says, listen, I'm going to let you lack this thing so you can go this place. Listen, I remember one time, you know, I was driving back from a friend's house. My car has never had a mechanical issue. Never one time. This car never had a mechanical issue. Driving back, Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and as I'm driving, right, everything's fine, no problem. Get down, and next thing you know, I'm, I'm coming to this, this uh, intersection of two highways. And as I come to this intersection of two highways, I'm like, okay, you know, but there was just something stirring in my heart about this intersection. I was thinking, should I pull off here and get gas? But now I was like, nah, nah, just keep driving. I can go another 50 miles and then I'll get gas. As soon as I pass that intersection, car breaks down, overheats. I'm like, what's going on? I pull over on the side of the road. Now I'm like two miles away from this intersection, right? And you know, if there's an intersection of highways, there's no gas station. So I was like, Lord, are you serious? <laughs> So I got out the car, looked at the hood. I'm like, oh, man. So I start walking. And as I start walking, I realized, man, there's no gas station at the highway. I have to go back to the previous exit where I was thinking I should stop for gas. So as I'm walking, I'm thinking maybe somebody might recognize me or pick me up or something. Then I see a sign that says prison nearby. Do not pick up strangers. <laughs> Come on, Lord. <laughs> Famine in the land, burning hot in the summer, no ride. God's like, you're going to walk? So I walked two and a half miles to this thing, sweatpants, burning up, get to the, the exit, and I go, and there's two gas stations. There's one on the left and one on the right, and I saw the one on the left. They're like, oh, we have this big beef jerky thing. So I was thinking, well, I'm vegan, so I'll choose the other gas station. <laughs> So I go, this is my reasoning, but I'm, I'm going somewhere. Go to this gas station. As I walk in the gas station, right, I'm sweating and everything. I'm super hot. And I'm like, excuse me, is it possible for me to, uh, to like, use your phone? And she's like, well, no, but you can, you can use my personal phone. So I said, okay. So I called a friend of mine that lived about an hour away. He's like, yeah, yeah, man, I'll be on my way there. As we start talking... You know, I'm like, okay, I have to make this not awkward, right? Because there's signs that say prison nearby, right? <laughs> so here's this white girl working in the gas station, right? I'm this black guy hanging around the gas station. There's no one in the gas station. There's no one around, right? So I'm like, this is looking really suspicious. So I pull out my Bible, right? So I'm like trying to show I'm a spiritual person. And then I had a book I was reading on Revelation by Norman Gully. It was called Focus on Christ, Not the Crisis, right? So I'm reading this book. So as I'm reading through this book in Revelation in the corner, I'm like, do you mind if I just stay in here? It's just a little cooler. She's like, no, no, no problem. So I start reading the book. And then after a while, I'm like, man, I'm getting thirsty. You know, maybe I should buy something to kind of feel better that I'm loitering. So I go and buy something. And then she says, so what are you reading? Tell her we start this conversation. Next thing you know, I'm giving this girl the book, right? She wants the book that I'm reading on Revelation. 
After I give her the book, I sign the book, put a message in there. I said, listen, you know, to my dear friend, such and such and such and such, you know, I said, you'll be blessed by this book. Um, and so she's like, yeah, I think so, too. Like, I've been thinking about end time events and, like, you know, what's coming in the world right now and this and that and the third. And she said, this is so crazy. I'm like, why is this crazy? She says, because I wasn't supposed to work. But she says, they just called me 15 minutes ago. Right? Now you know why I had to walk. Because if I had gotten there before her, her manager would have been there. But he had an emergency in his life, right? He had a famine in the land. The Lord was driving him somewhere. So he had to go take her. So he called her to immediately come in on her day off. And she said, I had plans, but I just decided to cancel the plans. And then he called me to come in. So I came in. She says, I literally just got here a minute before you walked in. So now, right, I'm sitting in this conversation like, this is crazy. (laughs) This is crazy. She's like, I told you it's crazy. (laughs) We start talking about God, life, campus ministry, on and on. We end up talking for two hours, right? My friend was delayed. He said it would only take him an hour. It's been two hours. He still hasn't showed up. So he's blowing up my phone. Yo, man, I'm so sorry I'm running late, right? I'm thinking, man, take your time. (laughs) So by the end of it, she and I exchange information She's like, I'm like, listen, man, I know some places you can get Bible studies, this and that, and the third. And I'm looking at this thing, and he told my car, so he comes in, we told the car, and he starts apologizing. He's like, man, you should have got this thing checked, and da 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 da, right? He's going off, and he's like, usually he and I are like going back and forth, right? We're just arguing, and, but he's like, man, you're kind of calm. Like, you all right? This is not normal. You're, you're a very fiery person. I said, man, I'm just blessed, man. I said, I'm, I'm thinking about my life right now, my situation. I'm thinking, the day I left my friend's house, the time I left, when I saw that exit, something told me, pull over and get gas. I did not listen. So the Lord just broke down my vehicle. <laughs> then he broke me down near an area where you cannot get picked up. And I had to walk the 30 minutes, which gave her just enough time to get to the work, get to work. So when we talk about God allows a famine, it's because God is driving us somewhere. If we understood this, we would look at difficulties very differently. Now we're thinking to ourselves, man, why is it that I didn't get into the school the first time I applied? Because God was waiting for someone to get into school for you to be with. You may be thinking, Lord, why put me in this relationship knowing that it was going to last two years and it was going to dissolve and it wasn't going to work out. Why didn't you just tell me from the beginning that it was a bad relationship? Because God's like, I had to hold you for the right person. Listen, somebody doesn't know what I'm talking about. I'm telling you the truth. Young people come and say, why wouldn't God just tell me that this was the wrong person? I said, how do you expect God to tell you? Come to you in a dream, the person you're dating, this ain't going to work. (laughs) Leave I said, leave the relationship. I said, I want you to understand something. The fact that God gave you that dream ain't going to change one ounce of your affections. I said, if anything, God will be encouraging disobedience. Because you'll know the vision, you'll have the dream, but you'll be sitting there fiending for something you know God doesn't want for you. That's a difficult place to be in. So God, in his mercy, (laughs) allows himself to lead you by providence. And you're thinking, why would I even... God, you could have told me, I prayed about this relationship. I agonized. (laughs) 
You did agonize, you did pray, and God answered your prayer. <laughs> but the reality is God can't make two people work together. He can't do that. If you don't work, it doesn't work. But there's only one way to find out. Can't look at you and know that this relationship ain't going to work. But it's the same concept. That people say, why would God allow this thing? Because he's driving you somewhere. So when Christ talks about blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He's saying the very fact that you have this desire is an indication of divine working upon your heart. Listen, I want to read to you a statement. It's from Thoughts on the Mount of Blessing. This is what she says. I'll make sure I get this quote right. These are her words. These are not my words. She says, if you sense, this is Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page 19. If you have a sense of need in your soul, if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, this is an evidence that Christ has wrought upon your heart. In order that he may be sought unto to do for you through the endowment of the Holy Spirit, those things which is impossible for you to do for yourself. That sounds a lot like the definition of righteousness by faith. So right here in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, verse 6, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, Christ is looking at us and saying, listen, the very idea of righteousness by faith begins with a desire. It begins with a craving in the soul. But this craving is not of human origin. God has to give us a craving. God has to give us a craving for righteousness. And in that craving that God provides, it is the very sign that we will have righteousness is the fact that we have the craving itself. You're not hearing what I'm saying. Righteousness by faith in this verse is being illustrated by saying this. What qualifies me for being filled with righteousness? By hungering and thirsting for it. Not how sorrowful I feel. If you hunger and thirst, what will happen to you? You shall be filled. That's the end of the verse. It, there's no other condition. It doesn't matter if you're white, black, blue, or purple. It doesn't matter if you're young or old, fat or skinny, tall, short. It does not matter your culture, your age, how deep your sins were. Listen, when the Bible says, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be filled. There is no craving for righteousness so great that God cannot fill. You may be thinking, Lord, I'm so far. The Bible says in Hebrews 7.25 that he is able to save to the uttermost. Completely. There's no one that's going to come up short when we lean upon the merits of Christ. No one's going to say, Lord, I need this much righteousness. This is what I'm hungering for. The text says you are blessed just for having the craving. Because God gives a craving. And that's what we need to start praying for if we want to have an experience with righteousness by faith. Lord, I'm not praying for righteousness. I'm praying for craving. I need to have a desire. But you see, without the desire, you will not be filled. And if the desire is a divine work, it is a sign that Christ has wrought upon your heart and my heart. That means it is him doing for me what I cannot do for myself. You cannot manufacture a desire for righteousness. You can't create it. It's not emotion. We can try to manufacture emotion, right? You know, we have this thing as Christians. 
where we like to sometimes take our favorite Christian songs, make us really emotional, right, when we sin, we mess up, we just listen to that Christian song, starts making us feel all guilty and convicted and understand what Jesus did for me. I'm telling you because I've done it. I'm not an idiot. And I know I'm not the only one. We sing to that Christian song, when we sin, we messed up, and there it is, in Christ alone. We're like, yes, Lord, yes. <laughs> yes, my hope is found. And I'm, I'm over here listening to this song, my eyes are getting teary-eyed, my heart is racing. I'm like, man, I need to give my life to Christ again, Lord, I need to surrender again, I messed up. Shouldn't have said this to my wife. And as I'm grappling with this thing, I'm using the music to make me feel like I'm accepted with God. When what I need to do is go on my knees and say, Lord, give me a craving for righteousness. Listen, C.S. Lewis, he has one of an illustration that he likes to use as his inductive argument for heaven. And he says that oftentimes what we find in nature is that God gives desires, right? And then there's a corresponding fulfillment for that desire. So he says, well, you know, ducks have a desire to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Right? He says, well, people have sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. People have a desire for food. Right? They have hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. It wouldn't make sense for God to create us with the desire for hunger, and there's nothing to satisfy that hunger. Are you with me? So he says, if I find in myself right, a desire which nothing in this world can fulfill, then the most logical conclusion is that I was made for another world. That's C.S. Lewis. Now, I want to adopt this illustration for this point. God supplies the needs that he creates. Are you understanding what I'm saying? This is a firm principle in the, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mountain. So when Christ is giving the Sermon on the Mount, this is a firm principle that was true for then and it is true for today. God supplies the needs that he creates. Later on, he goes on in Matthew 6 as he's continuing in the sermon and he says, listen, why are you taking thought for food? Consider the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap, but your heavenly father does what? He feeds them. So I want you to think about this. Christ says, look at creation. Who created the birds? Your father. Your father created the birds. Who created the birds with an appetite? The father. And who supplies the, the, the desire? The father feeds them. So Christ is saying, listen, you think, why is it that your heavenly father knows what you need? Because I made you. I made you with a stomach. I made you with a throat. I made you with this to desire water, to desire hunger and food. Listen, from the very beginning of time, God gave us a craving. The very day he looked at Adam and Eve and said, you may eat freely of all the trees of the garden. The day he said, listen, he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. And behold, I have given you all these trees. The very moment he did that, God was already suggesting he had given them a craving, even in perfection. Even in sinlessness, there was desire. And in this desire, God says, I supply the needs that I create. But we have to first admit that the desire for righteousness is divinely created. Our desire for righteousness is not something that's going to come from us. It's not going to come from your guilt. It's not going to come from any of these things. It is divinely created. We have to thank God that when we sin, we feel guilty. That's because the Holy Spirit is still working. 
young man come to me and said, you know, I think I committed the unpardonable sin. I said, the very fact that you said that means you didn't. He's like, what? What do you mean? I'm pretty sure I committed the unpardonable sin. The very fact that you're saying that is proof you didn't. He's like, what? I don't get it. I said, if you feel like you sinned, you have not committed the unpardonable sin. <laughs> the unpardonable sin is the exact opposite of what you're saying to me. Unpardonable sin is I have not sinned because the only sin God cannot forgive is the one you're not willing to confess. And you know what confess means? It means to agree. Con means with, fess means to say. God's like, I already know you sinned. So when you come to confess your sins, he is faithful and just. Why? He knows you sinned. He's waiting for you to come and say, I have sinned. Listen, when David killed Uriah, took his wife, slept with her, all he had to do was come to God and say what? I have sinned. That's what happened. He didn't go through any rituals. What did he do? Climb the highest mountain before God forgave him? Did he swim to the depths of the Red Sea? Did he go and kill 2,000 heads of Philistines and bring them to God as an offering? Listen, Micah is not exaggerating when he says, the angst within the human soul with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O oh man. But this is how we come to God. Before I come, what should I come with? Should I come with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Before I come down to bow down before God on high, he says, like the words of Abraham to Isaac, God shall provide himself a lamb. Think about that. Right then and there, he was teaching righteousness by faith. He supplies the needs that he creates. Where's the lamb? God will provide himself a lamb. It's no different in your experience and mine. I'm totally way off topic, but that's okay. I want to close because I know my time is pretty much running out. So I'm just going to rush to my conclusion. I want to first talk about Luther. Martin Luther, God gave him a craving. You know, Luther, the story goes that he was extraordinarily successful as a monk. He plunged himself into prayer, fasting, and ascetic practices. What we mean by ascetic is this, going without sleep, enduring bone-chilling cold without a blanket, and flagellating himself. As he later commented, if anyone could have earned heaven by the life of a monk, it was I. Sounds a lot like Paul, right? Philippians 3. Though he sought by these means to love God fully, he found no consolation. He was increasingly terrified of the wrath of God. This is what he said. He said, when it is touched by this passing inundation of the eternal, the soul feels and drinks nothing but eternal punishment. This is Luther talking. During his early years, whenever Luther read what would become the most famous Reformation text, Romans chapter 1, verse 17, 
His eyes were drawn not to the word faith, but to the word righteous. Who, after all, could live by faith but those who were already righteous? The text was clear on the matter. The righteous shall live by faith. Are you following this? He's looking at the text, right? But what do we say? The limitation is not in God's purpose, but in our capacity. He's looking at the text and it says, the just shall live by faith. He says, of course, if you're just, you can live by faith. But if you're not just, you can't live by faith. So he's focusing on the just part rather than the faith part. And he's looking at this text all the time. Luther remarked, I hated that word, righteous. The righteousness of God by which I had been taught according to the custom and use of all teachers that God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. The young Luther could not live by faith because he was not righteous and he knew it. Meanwhile, he was ordered to take his doctorate in the Bible and he became a professor at Wittenberg University. During lectures on the Psalms and a study of the book of Romans, he began to see a way through his dilemma. This is what happened to Luther. At last, meditating day and night by the mercy of God, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that through which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt, as it were, entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. This is how Luther felt. The day he came to this reality, he said, listen, I felt like I was entirely born again. I'm a completely new person. This is the Luther that became the Luther that we know and respect. All that here I stand, I can do no other. That all started with an understanding of just the right emphasis from the word righteous to the word faith. Just that change created the man that has really become the voice of the Reformation. Just the change of the emphasis and the salvific experience that it brought to his own life. We go to the life of Ellen White. God gave her a craving. Her salvation experience, as she recollects it, began in earnest after the family had moved from Gorham to Portland, Maine, when she was a child. At nine years of age, 1836, she went through a traumatic injury, we know this story, right? Being struck in the face with a stone thrown at her by a classmate. At this time, she diligently sought the Lord to prepare her for death. This is what Ellen White started doing, preparing for death at nine. She strongly desired to become a Christian and prayed earnestly for the forgiveness of her sins. Ellen remembered a peace of mind and a deep desire that all should love Jesus and have their sins forgiven. But these very early yearnings were only the prelude to what could be characterized as her conversion crisis. It began to unfold with intensity during William Miller's first visit to Portland, Maine in March of 1840. For a course of lectures on the second coming, this is in First Testimonies, page 14. This series of lectures created a serious crisis of soul for the 12-year-old Ellen, a crisis that was not to be clearly resolved until 1842, two years in the making. In the wake of Miller's second series of lectures in Portland, during Miller's solemn appeals, she found it hard to obtain an assurance of acceptance, feeling that, and I quote, she could never become worthy to be called a child of God. 
This is how she felt. She later related how she felt that she would be lost if Christ should come and find her in her current spiritual condition. And what is William Miller preaching? Jesus is coming in 1844. So here she's thinking this guy's coming and preaching, convincing by prophecy that the judge of all the earth is coming. And here I am not ready. I don't I don't I don't have my experience of conversion. So she goes on. She later related how she felt. Um, sorry, I already read this. She says it was very difficult to surrender fully to the Lord. She was so burdened that she confided to her brother, Robert, that she had coveted death. In the days when life seemed so burdensome. But now her mind was terror stricken with the thought that she might die in her sinful state and be lost eternally. It seems that her fears and confusions continued until the summer of 1842 when she attended a Methodist camp meeting at Buxton, Maine, where she was fully determined to seek the Lord and obtain the pardon for her sins. Her resolutions were not in vain. During this deeply spiritual season, she came to understand that she had been indulging in self-dependence. This was the turning point. She had come to realize she had been indulging in self-dependence. Goes on to say, she professed to find comfort in the thought that only by connecting with Jesus through faith can the sinner become a hopeful, believing child of God. She now began to see her way more clearly, and the deep night of spiritual darkness began to turn to a more hopeful dawn. While earnestly and persistently seeking the Lord for forgiveness at the altar and sensing her helpless condition, she felt her burden suddenly lifted and enjoyed a lightheartedness that seemed too good to be true. She sensed that Jesus was near and that he had blessed her and pardoned her sins. The days following the Buxton camp meeting, Ellen witnessed an almost constant state of joy in the Lord. <laughs> Soon after her return home, she was baptized by immersion in Casco Bay and was received into full membership of the Chestnut Street Methodist Episcopal Church in Portland, Maine. God had given her a craving, and she was filled. When I read these things, I cannot believe that all of us are experiencing that. To think that it's saying here that she witnessed an almost constant state of joy in the Lord. And sometimes, I mean, we could walk around here and just look at our faces and know we don't have joy in the Lord. We don't. Our life is all about the thorns and the burdens. This is the drawing of our minds. And this was the experience of Mother Teresa, my last person. You know, Mother Teresa, when she died, they released copies of her diary. These were letters that she sent to a spiritual advisor. And they published these in a book. And this is an interesting story, so I want you to follow this. In one letter from 1962, Mother Teresa even mused about her sense of spiritual desolation might impact the bid, which was to make her a saint. So now she goes on and says, if I ever became, become a saint, I will surely be one of darkness. This is what Mother Teresa wrote. I will continually be absent from heaven to the light of those in darkness on earth. I think that this is a real treasure. This is the guy commenting. 
for not only believers, but even doubters and skeptics. I think it also makes her much more accessible to, every, to the everyday believer. It shows that even the saints struggle in their spiritual lives and that they don't have it easier than we do. They sometimes have it harder than we do. This is what these people are writing. But this gets even more interesting. In 1942, Mother Teresa, she took a vow to not refuse Jesus anything. That was her vow. Starting in 1946, she experienced these mystical encounters with Jesus, which she called the voice, asking her to serve the poorest of the poor. The darkness, quote unquote, was her term for feelings of loneliness and abandonment when her communion with Jesus ended. Prior to 1946, this gentleman who was analyzing said little was known about Teresa's spiritual life. She says in a letter, I came to India with a desire to love Jesus as he has never been loved before. Just think about that statement. I came to India with a desire to love Jesus in a way he's never been loved before. But she says she was a woman passionately in love with Jesus. Yet no sooner did Teresa start her work in the slums of Calcutta than she began to feel the intense absence of Jesus. A state that lasted until her death, according to her letters. And the letter estimated to be from 1961, Teresa wrote, Darkness is such that I really do not see, neither with my mind nor with my reason, the place of God in my soul is blank. There is no God in me. When the pain of longing is so great, I just long and long and long for God, the torture and pain I can't explain. Over time, the Reverend Joseph Neuner, a spiritual advisor, helped Teresa realize her feelings of abandonment only increased her understanding of the people she helped. Ultimately, she identified her suffering with that of Jesus, which helped her accept it. I end with this story because God had given her a craving, but no one wanted to point her to the filling. Here she is saying, I feel this loneliness. There is no God in me. I feel disconnected from Christ, the sense of abandonment, the sense of loneliness. God gave her a craving, but no one told her where to, where to drink. Because in Catholicism, it doesn't exist. There is no such fountain. And I wonder, as you and I have come to this event, if we really made up our minds that we want to love Jesus in a way that he's never been loved before. That's the first question. You know, when my wife and I were first married, we had this devotion one time, early part of our marriage, the first few months. And as we were having worship together, we were reflecting on this whole idea of, you know, what's a good model to approach our life at home? And so we were reading this devotional book, and as we are reflecting on this devotional book, we came out with these words. We said, what if we set a vision for our marriage is, I want to love my wife in ways she's never been loved before. That's my goal every single day. And what if her goal every single day was, I want to love my husband 
in ways that he's never been loved before. But then we realize, right, that this is all, it's all well and good, it sounds great and romantic, but what if we applied that to Jesus? And I listen to what other people do for Christ. I listen to the offerings other people bring to Christ. But what if I wanted to love Jesus in a way that he's never been loved before? But in that desire that I have, in that emotion, in that passion that you can have for Christ and all that you can give, it will not fill. Even if you had that desire in your heart, even if it crossed your mind to do that, tonight in this room, you may be inspired by that and say, yeah, man, I want to leave here. I want to love Jesus in ways you never loved before. But Mother Teresa says you'll still feel the abandonment, the loneliness, the brokenness, the darkness. Because when God gives us a desire for righteousness, our works, it doesn't say blessed, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall do works. It says they shall be filled. It is passive in the Greek. That means it is something done to you. There is a filler. And as God looks at our response, he says, would you open your heart to allow me to give you a craving for righteousness? That's his question. God gave them a craving. He gave it to Luther. He gave it to Ellen. He gave it to Mother Teresa. And I don't know about you, but I want to end up like Luther and Ellen. I don't want to end up like Mother Teresa. To the grave in emptiness. When the Bible says, you shall be filled. That means there will come a day where you won't even desire righteousness. You'll be filled. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. My invitation is very simple. For that person, the Lord has spoke to your heart. And the Lord is saying to you tonight, I want to give you a craving for righteousness. What I gave to Martin, what I gave to Ellen. But the question is, is your heart open? Is your heart open? And if you want to say, yes, Lord, my heart is open. And my prayer tonight, and we're going to be a prayer session even after this. Give me a craving for righteousness. That's your desire. I want to invite you to stand to your feet. That's your desire. Give me a craving. Father in heaven, you know our hearts. You know our needs and you know our weaknesses. You see those of us who have stood, and I'm the first one to confess, Lord, 
that we need this craving. We need God to awaken a deep desire in our souls for righteousness. And that desire is awakened through the activity of God. There's something when we see the example of Christ. There's something when we see the goodness of God. There's something when we see righteousness lived out before us, around us. Lord, that awakens in us that desire, that craving for righteousness. And Father, that's the craving we want. The craving that is deeper than the craving for food. The craving that is deeper than the craving for power or for security or for love or for acceptance. A craving that is greater than any other. That it would consume all desires. And that we would seek first your righteousness. Father, give us this craving. And help us to know that just the very desire itself is a sign that we shall be filled. Thank you, Lord, for hearing and answering this prayer. And we ask and trust that you will help this to be our experience. As we offer this prayer in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.